Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. Dr. Jonathan Meekins is a former chair of the Department of Surgery at McGill. He's also an officer of the Order of Canada for his outstanding work in immunobiology, laparoscopic surgery, and transplantation. Among his many interests is his love of art, and at the age of 73, Dr. Meekins has gone back to school to obtain his master's in fine arts. Check out these show notes to see some of the fascinating work Dr. Meekins has done to demonstrate how the critical viewing of art can perhaps make us better clinicians. Can you tell us about uh, where you grew up and, and where you did your training, sir? I, uh, I basically grew up in Montreal. I was fortunate enough to go to largely private schools. Uh, one of them was a boarding school, which I don't recommend. I, I then went to do a uh, bachelor's degree at uh, McGill. And as you may have discovered, I have a, a long, strong family history of doctors here at McGill. And so I opted to go to medical school at Western. And uh, I think for my personal growth and development, uh, that that was a very good decision on my part. And uh, I have no regrets at all to leaving uh, Montreal and not having a McGill degree. Um, my surgical training was uh, entirely at the uh, Royal Victoria. And at that time, uh, McGill uh, was much like Alberta and Edmonton and Calgary. Edmonton and Calgary were competitors and in Montreal, the Montreal General and the Royal Victoria were competitors and ran, despite being in the same institution, two completely different residency programs with no overlap. So I had the misfortune of never uh, training or experiencing uh, surgery at the Montreal General. Uh, they, in fact, had outstanding surgeons, and it's hard to imagine that that wouldn't have been beneficial. However, it was not the culture at the time. Uh, in the middle of my residency, uh, a little bit to the annoyance of uh, Dr. McLean, but fundamentally with his support, I, I went to the States to do uh, uh, a doctorate uh, in Cincinnati in surgical infection uh, and surgical immunobiology. And, and that uh, thesis and that those three years were basically the intellectual infrastructure or what I like to call intellectual capital, uh, which you require to develop uh, a laboratory. And when I came back and finished my residency at the Royal Victoria and came on staff again at the Royal Victoria and McGill University, my thesis was basically uh, the foundation of my first MRC grant. 
In those days, you would get a grant for two years, uh, and you could then renew it. But the renewals uh, were usually for only a single year uh, until you got a program grant, which we eventually... So my first grant was in 1975, and we eventually got, after two renewals, and an annual renewal is really tiresome, but we got a program grant in... 1979 or 80, which continued into the uh, middle 90s, not run by me the entire time. Uh, Dr. Christou, who was a colleague in the lab, eventually took it over when I became a chairman in 1989. Uh, I, I, I might add that uh, training doesn't actually stop the day you leave your residency. Most of us think it does or did then. But in fact, uh, training is an ongoing process that continues. And those of you who've grown up in the modern technology era will understand very clearly that you're retraining yourself with every new set of instruments. Um, laparoscopy has made enormous demands on retraining and so on. And I, I've taken uh, repeated sabbaticals uh, within that uh, framework of re-education. Sir, you've had a storied and, and a well-known career. I mean, it, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention for our listeners that you're, you're, uh, you've won an order of Canada. Your, your career has just been full of so many things. You've, you've written a number of textbooks. But if, if I could ask you, sir, what have been the things that you're most proud of uh, over your career? What are the things that, that you look back on and, and really um, now look at and, and think that these are the things that I'm, I'm most proud of? I, I, it's the first time I've actually had to think about that in concrete terms. It would be silly of me to say that I wasn't uh, delighted to be an officer of the Order of Canada or to have uh, received honorary degrees from McGill and Western. Uh, and they were in a form highlights, but they were uh, a function of other activities that were of significance. And I guess I, I tried to put some of that into some context, but I, I would have to say that uh, developing a model of surgical infection, which integrated using Venn diagrams, uh, the bacterial component or the infectious component, the environment uh, that was the patient in which the infection took place, and then the host immune response into an integrated approach to the management and study of surgical infections, I thought was a very uh, constructive way of looking at, at that problem and was the source of innumerable ways of thinking about the overall problems of surgical infection so that when one area didn't work out terribly well, you always had two other areas in which you had irons in the fire to work on. Uh, starting with uh, laparoscopy, we established from the very first case at McGill, a registry and then established a randomized control trial, which we eventually had to terminate because of lack of equipoise. But those two studies led to papers in the Lancet, uh, 
and innumerable papers uh, presented at the American Surgical and uh, throughout uh, Canada, the United States on the issues associated with laparoscopic surgery. And that, that basically was integrated with the whole concept of how do you deal with a new procedure? How do you evaluate it? And, and how do you start to identify what is a good new operation versus what is simply marketing? And being a little, not being very unfair, but there are a number of gradations in between. And uh, that led to a number of uh, discussions and papers on uh, should the rules of evidence be altered for surgery. And when I was at Oxford, we finally uh, actually had a series of uh, seminars or colloquia at uh, my college in Oxford uh, called the Balliol Colloquia. And we eventually set up three manuscripts, which were published in The Lancet in the fall of 2009, identifying at least a roadmap for management of and evaluation of new procedures, which have been referred to innumerable times over the last uh, 11 years. So I, I thought that was an important process, but it's interesting, it took a long time to, uh, to get to that point from 1989 with the beginning of laparoscopy to 2009, that's 20 years of fussing around, trying to get at the answer to what is not a simple problem, but a very important approach to new technology, as you'll understand, it applies to every single branch of surgery and interventive medicine. The other area that I thought was uh, significant was um, contributions at the American College of Surgeons, which are sort of subdued within the overall uh, framework of the college. I was on the Board of Regents, was involved in a number of uh, important changes that took place, not the least of which was the establishment of a division of education and, a, and an outcomes division, which now both of them are flourishing. I would say also that sabbaticals are in, invaluable in terms of personal development. And they made a huge difference to me in terms of uh, growth and development of myself as an individual, but also uh, in terms of uh, what I was able to bring back to the department. There's a couple of topics there I was hoping we could we could drill down on though if if you're okay with it. The the first, you know, obviously your Lancet papers with regard to the introduction of of novel technologies, particularly in surgery, but in medicine as a whole, are really the standard bearers. And your experience at Oxford certainly sounds like it was amazing uh, over what I believe was about six years. So I'm curious, you know, what that experience was was like. Uh, firstly, and then secondarily, what drove you to pursue that particular uh, award and, and, and preceding competition? And then finally, um, why at that point in your career? So why not earlier or potentially later? Uh, well, I was see, hoping you could frame that, yeah. Yeah, I can actually. Um, 
I think the key word uh, is uh, competing for the position. In, in fact, I was 62 when it came along, and it, I spent the I spent six months at Oxford on sabbatical in Peter Morris's department. And he was uh, at the edge of retirement, and they had not yet um, completed the selection process. It, it had fallen behind uh, seriously from an administrative point of view, and they, they were suddenly finding themselves uh, offering the position as uh, Peter Morris was leaving to someone who eventually turned it down. Now, while I was there, uh, I spent a lot of time observing activities, not only within the hospital, but uh, within, curiously, the examination system. And I ended up writing two uh, reasonably uh, long reports, which were really thoughtful. Yeah, because I, you here you have a guy from North America, um, coming in and criticizing the way in which things are done in Oxford. Well, you can imagine that the receptivity index is low. So they had to be extremely carefully crafted and, and then uh, almost negotiated uh, to be acceptable. So both of those things took place. I won't go into the details of the examination system because it's not really important. But I, I wrote a report that they eventually adopted for changing the exam system in um, the fourth in the last year. Um, and with respect to how the hospital ran its surgical services, I, I also wrote a report on that that had to do with how we had made all the changes to day surgery, same day admission, pre-admission clinics, etc. It, at the Royal Victoria. So I left in the fall of 2001 and came back to uh, my previous uh, position, and uh, which was uh, chair of the department and head of surgery at the McGill University Health Center. And uh, rumors started to circulate that they were having trouble finding someone. And eventually, uh, I was asked if I was interested in the post. So I didn't. So in fact, I, one of the conditions, I said, sure, of course I'm interested in the post. You, nobody at 62, which you picked up on rather cleverly, um, gets a new job of this sort. They this, they go to 50-year-olds as a general rule. And even in Europe, they tend to even pick people in their 40s. So uh, they were in a bind in a way, and, and they needed somebody who had hospital experience as well as university administrative management experience. And there are not a huge number of people around like that who are movable because they usually have already arrived at a job they like. But I'd been in post at the Royal Victoria for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years, 13 years. and. Uh, it was my second term as chairman of the Department of uh, Surgery. Uh, and you sort of run out of gas in your uh, in wherever you're working. Uh, the concept of um, five years renewable once is a very sound one. 
And uh, the University of Montreal actually uses four years renew renewable once on the principle that that once you've got to the end of eight or 10 years, uh, your agenda has what you can get done has been done. And all the problems you can't solve, you still can't solve tomorrow. And uh, maybe it's time for someone else who can come in and solve the things you can't solve and bring in some fresh ideas. So I was kind of, I don't say I was floundering because we were making some progress here and there. But fundamentally, the opportunity to go to Oxford was terrific. So I, they asked if I was interested. And I said, yes, I'm interested. But I won't compete for the position. So you either offer me the job or you don't. And the system they have there is called, uh, they have an electoral board. They have nine people, uh, four from the Division of Medical Sciences, uh, a chair, uh, two people from the college, which you would be expected to join, and two outsiders uh, from, in this instance, one from uh, London and one from the north. At any rate, uh, I got a phone call in uh, June of that summer saying that I'd been elected. And uh, so I knew it, it was going to happen. And my wife and I went to Oxford in the middle of uh, June and again in the middle of July to negotiate my own terms and those for my wife's job, uh, all of which got done satisfactorily. And so we moved on very short notice. I mean, it was the opportunity of a lifetime, to be quite honest. Um, it's a wonderful place to live and work. Uh, the atmosphere, the environment, the architecture, the history. Uh, it's a tremendous, it was a tremendous opportunity. And while there were a number of lumps and bumps getting along as a North American with an English mindset, and to say that the English surgical community was pleased that a senior Canadian surgeon had got this job, I think would be an understatement, uh, overstatement. There was some lumpy times with uh, the rest of the uh, surgical community, but life goes on. And uh, it was uh, it was a great experience. I. I uh, I cut a few, uh, you have to cut all your connections with North America. So with the United States uh, and its various societies, plus uh, Canadian structures. Uh, but I would, uh, we'd do it again. Both of us had a wonderful time. And I think there was some genuine intellectual and academic productivity, both within the department, the university and uh, in our own lives. And that innovation study was fantastic, I think. Uh, so I, I think that I think that addresses your question. It was an opportunity that I, I couldn't turn down, even though it uh, came with a lot of lumps and bumps. You know, we had to sell our house. And we had to figure out what to do with the farm. Uh, we moved to a new country. Uh, didn't have any idea where we were going to live. Um, it was it was very exciting, fantastic thing to happen at the age of sixty-two.
We wanted to ask you a little bit about another passion in your life, and I don't know how you managed to to pursue the all these different passions within you know a twenty four hour period. But you know, you've had a long <laughs> fascination and and love for art. What is it about art that you you enjoy learning about and studying about and and pursuing so much? I think. I think, frankly, I was introduced at a very young age. I was taken with my sisters uh, repeatedly to the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts uh, as a as a child. I don't know when it started, but certainly up uh, until my early teens, I would go. Uh, they would be family adventures on the weekend, and uh, then I I had. Uh, eight weeks in a schoolboy trip in Europe, uh, riding around in a minibus, uh, six of us, uh, with a teacher uh, and his wife. And and we went to really the major cities of the UK, uh, Ireland, uh, Paris, Amsterdam. And while it was in city, uh, obviously, the museums and cultural activities were significant, and the same in London. There's so much to see and do in London. And we went to Stratford, got introduced to Shakespeare in, in a real sense, that is, seeing it. Um, opera, theater. Uh, it was a sort of a transformative experience such that at 21, when I graduated with a BA, even though I didn't know which medical school I was going to, um, I applied late. So it was in the middle of the summer when uh, my final acceptance came in. But anyway, I, I just couldn't see not going on this uh, three-month mini sabbatical. I look back on it now. I didn't think of it that way then. I thought of it just as three months in Europe on a scooter. Fantastic. So we did that. I did that and uh, basically went from London to Gibraltar to Florence and Rome and back to Amsterdam and London. So that was quite an adventure. It took us three months, took me three months. And I did the same thing again between third and fourth year in medical school. All my, most of my classmates all went to be interns or work with people they wanted to have as have a residency with, etc. And uh, I, I went to Europe for three months. Her best thing I ever did, or second best thing. I, I picked a very good wife. That's the best thing I did. At any rate, uh, that, that concept of taking time off and uh, exercising my brain in different ways I think is uh, a part of the way I grew up, but it certainly uh, reaffirmed my interest in, in going to museums and seeing art. And if there was one thing that happened in those uh, two sets of images, I can still recount. One is that as a very young boy seeing uh, Goya's Disasters of War, a set of, uh, of prints that are uh, horrific in terms of their uh, the war they portray, but also uh, intensely moving and fascinating. And then 
the landscapes that I saw in London of uh, Constable Turner and Gainsborough, along with those in Holland of uh, Van Rysdale, the Mopper, uh, the two Van Rysdales, and to some extent, the uh, Rembrandt's landscapes. Uh, they just seem to touch me one way or another and uh, have uh, and remained an interest and have and remain still an interest today, those particular artists. So when we took our sabbatical in 1980-81, one of the things we we did a lot of was go to antique stores, art galleries, um, museums, try and see whether there was something that we might want to collect. And when the dust all settled, it, it really turned out to be works on paper, uh, stimulated by an extraordinary exhibit we saw of uh, Pizarro, uh, where his uh, print uh, or half of his print output was uh, exhibited. And uh, suddenly we wanted to collect or I wanted to collect. And we eventually settled on prints and uh, collected or accumulated prints for a wide, long period of time. And, and you asked, how do you do that in a, fit it into a day? Well, you look at catalogs for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour before you go to sleep at night. Uh, I never watched TV. Uh, I, I always thought that if I read the newspaper, I, I could turn the page. Whereas when you're watching TV, it's a lot harder to turn a page because they're setting the agenda. And I, I never quite cared for that, uh, the concept of uh, the CBC or ABC or NBC setting my intellectual or informative agenda. So newspapers were my source of news. I found by that, by that time, I found sports on TV boring. And uh, so this was just a, a way of exercising my mind, I guess. And uh, it uh, hasn't stopped. The art side of things, I should say. That's tremendous, Dr. Meekins. I particularly love you know, this idea that, that in some ways art is very different than other forms of media because really the there is some onus on the person, the viewer, to actually do some work in terms yeah. of actually interpreting what they're seeing. It's not just, you know, a one-way sort of traffic from the TV screen or the computer screen, so to speak, uh, yeah, to your mind. Uh, and, and, you know, sort of along those lines, you wrote this really interesting uh, piece in CMAJ um, after the, there was this, this this article written about one of the pieces of art in uh, in the hospital. And, and you sort of wrote a rebuttal about the, the art collection um, at, at McGill. And I'm curious, and I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about it, because I think it gets at some of the the interesting kind of thoughts about like, well, what, what should art in the hospital or in medicine really look like? Well, uh, that it, it, that's a very good question. So let me uh, tell you how I got started on this. 
the hospitals were going to move and no one was thinking about what are they going to do with the heritage items or the art that was already in the Royal Victoria and the Montreal Children's Hospitals to a lesser extent the chest. So um, without going into the details, uh, the CEO was persuaded that he needed to set up uh, some kind of group to manage uh, all of this work. Um, how do they transfer? Where does it go? How does it get organized and cataloged? Well, we we sort we did that sort of well. It was it's very difficult. Imagine emptying your own house and knowing where everything is, and then translate that into em emptying a hospital that was built a hundred and 20 years before you're moving. So it was uh, it was a challenging task and I, I don't think we got it all right, but what we have persuaded the CEO and the hospital is that we have to rehang those pictures, that we, we need to create an environment that is uh, humanistic, that has has a distraction quality for patient's family. And actually, I often think more importantly, the staff. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite persuaded that the art that we've put up at the Glen and the Montreal General uh, have transformed the experience of people who are looked after in the areas where the art is into something more positive than it would have been otherwise, and that the workers in those areas are, are simply more contented with their environment. Now, imagine that a new building that has nothing in it from a distraction point of view, other than the things you have outside people's rooms with disinfectants, masks, gloves, gowns, etc. There, it's it, it could be said to be ugly. And putting color on the walls uh, of quality really transforms that environment extraordinarily. And so we have uh, worked with artists. Um, we've worked with the collection that came out of uh, the Royal Victoria and the Children's to rehang a lot of that work. It, it's taken quite a bit of discussion with the uh, owners of the hospital. The hospital is not owned either by the government or McGill, it's owned by SNC-Lavalin because it's a private public partnership. And part of the deal is that the, the hospital is rented by SNC for a period of 30 years when um, then it reverts to ownership by McGill, I assume. At any rate, uh, SNC was for a long time um, disinterested in the idea of putting pictures on the wall. They, they saw it as uh, nice uh, white and that it was uh, annoying to have these people wanting to hang things. Uh, the nails might go into a pipe or disrupt something else or wouldn't be done appropriately, etc. So it took us quite a few, well, a couple of years to really develop a, a warm relationship with SNC, which exists now. 
So when we make an application that we want to put up 15 or 20 uh, pictures in a clinic or in a ward, uh, we can provide them using computer technology with the exact location of the pictures. Uh, they review what's in the walls and then will approve either our design or make modifications. And we will then go ahead and put the pictures up. So we've had a number of artists who've uh, volunteered or said they wish to donate work. And we have an acquisition committee and an acquisition process, which is quite rigorous to ensure that um, uh, my, uh, that my, I don't paint, but anything that I might draw is going to, is not going to get hung on the walls or no doctor's wife because, or husband for that matter, who's an, who thinks they're an artist is going to get their works automatically placed uh, on the wall, which we knew had happened in the past. Same goes for photographs. We all think we're good photographers, but if you talk to a professional photographer or look at how they take pictures and what they do with their negatives, etc., you, you see that there's a sea order difference in the quality of the image, as well as its aesthetic component. Uh, I just use Ed Bertinsky or Jeff Wall as perfect Canadian examples. Uh, Yusuf Karsh for portraits, um, extraordinary. Uh, and we all think we take good pictures, but the fact is that it's the pros who really take the good pictures. So that was one thing that we, we did is using the old material plus new material that artists submitted. Plus we had a series of exhibitions in the research atrium. I let, there's room for 12 very large uh, images and we've had a drawing exhibit, a couple of photographic exhibits, two painting exhibits. And the, the issue is that the, if it's a single artist, uh, the artist has the exhibit for six months and then gives us one of the pictures. One of the artists uh, actually gave us two of his paintings. Um, otherwise we get one of those and then it gets moved into a high profile area within the hospital where lots of people get to see it. Now that's a long-term process, but we also have photographers and printmakers coming to us with an idea or a set of images uh, which goes through our acquisition committee. Uh, we have rejected uh, material, uh, but that that's just sort of life. And, uh, and then we get to hang it in the clinics and the corridors. We've uh, done a number of wall wraps uh, with uh, sociocultural issues. Um, we have we have a lot of material. It would take me well over an hour maybe two hours to walk you through all of the areas where we've hung artwork. Um, not only do artists donate, but uh, owners donate. And there we have to be quite a bit more careful. But in our department of radiology, for example, there are 60 images, lithographs and etchings 
by a single artist. So there's a real coherence to the artwork that's in that area uh, that transforms the walls. It transforms the space. It means you're not you're not in some kind of uh, hostile environment. That it has uh, images that create sort of a human environment. Um, and we think it's working. So we have we have heritage objectives. We have exhibition cabinets in which we're placing uh, antique instruments and old cutlery and the uh, crockery that used to be used at the Royal Victoria. You'd be amazed at the quality of that material. We'd all be very happy to be eating off it today. Yeah, that's an amazing story, and it, it's it's clearly a program that you're obviously passionate you know, in, and, and I can certainly see the, the benefits of it. I, I think Amir and I both compare and contrast, you know, your program to, to what we have locally here, which is, uh, uh, you know, really the opposite end of the spectrum. And you, you're right with, with that kind of consideration and care. I have no doubt it invites a quality of, of artistic endeavor and, and delivery that, um, you know, besuits that effort and, and really does change the, the environment. To, to that end, I was hoping you could also talk about the archives of surgery paper you wrote in 96 on surgical infections in art. Um, there's a lot of messages in that manuscript and I, I love it. And we're gonna link it uh, uh, to the podcast here so the listeners can all, I'll be sure they read it. But you, you did make a specific uh, comment um, towards the end of it, I think where you said, of learning to see what we look at also makes us better clinicians, and I was I was curious what what you meant by that, and and, and really how how that that piece of language uh, articulates really the the greater um, uh, intention of the of the whole archives paper. Um, I I think part of um, I got started on that because I knew a. Uh, a curator whose brother was a doctor. And we, we had a little visit from the University of Michigan history group in medicine. And uh, so Fritz Dupart gave this little talk about images that he knew of where there was a disease uh, evident. And, and of course, artists are frequently just painting what they see. They're, they're not clinicians, although on occasion you can find situations where it, the artist must have known what was going on. So the best example I'd suggest that you look up a painting or either a painting or etching by uh, Giuseppe de Ribera, R-I-B-E-R-A, called Drunken Silenus, S-I-L-E-N-U-S. And what you'll see there is a drunk, but you'll also see the manifestations of advanced cirrhosis with ascites, um, certain amount of hairlessness, uh, obesity, uh, swollen legs, and gynecomastia, all of which are classic signs of ascites. Now, that may be just transforming what he saw when he painted an old drunk, but it, it may also reflect in sight on his part. So anyway, I, uh, in that sabbatical in 1987-88, I'd been to this lecture this fellow gave, and we went to 
thousands, not thousands. We went to museums all the time during that year. And one of the things I looked for was evidence of medical issues in every painting that we looked at. So that you could break it down into things like trauma, injuries, uh, uh, skin diseases, eye diseases, uh, deformed limbs, uh, dwarfs, uh, other structural things. And every once in a while, I'd see an infectious problem. And in that uh, paper, I, I think I show a picture by Basile of Claude Monet with uh, streptococcal cellulitis on his leg. But at any rate, the, the idea is that if you see, if you're, if you see what you're looking at, you're, you're clearly being a good observer. And, and that a significant component of clinical medicine is simply looking at your patient. I, I remember as a medical student, uh, professor of medicine came in and said, the, the physical exam starts as the patient walks in the room. And of course, being young and really smart, I said, that's ridiculous. Until I actually had an office and watched people come in the room. And you are, you're assessing them up. How do they look? How do they feel? What's their body stature? How, what body language are you getting from them? The more you think about that, the more cues you pick up concerning uh, the patient's concern, what kind of a person they are, how they're likely to respond to your uh, recommendations, etc. So observation, I think, is really key. But if you're looking and not absorbing it or not taking it in or actually not seeing it, it's, it's like... Uh, it's like hearing and listening. Uh, you can hear what's going on, but if you're not listening, you, you, you're not gonna get what the patient's trying to tell you. And the concept is very much the same as looking at people, and, but actually seeing whatever subtle messages they might be trying to convey. Or not, they're not trying to, but that's, that's actually what's going on. So, uh, that's part of what that's all about. And, and I became such a strong believer in that sort of thing that I think you walk into a patient's room and, and you look at them and you look at the urine bag and you look at the uh, eye drip and the patient's face lying in bed and what their attitude is. Pick up a huge amount of information just by walking from the door to the bed. And, and so that's what I mean by the value of observation and that if you train yourself that way, you will be a better clinician because you're integrating constantly uh, what's happening. You're turning your interaction into much more than a three hour. I've given a talk based on that lecture for infection, but also for all subject art and medicine and have challenged clinicians in the room to tell me what's wrong with this page, this uh, subject or that subject. And I've used it uh, for medical students 
to make the point about observation as well. In other words, they all can look at something and and not see that the the uh, the man in the in the painting has severe arthritis of the knee or has a uh, squint with a wandering eye or has cancer of the breast or a dislocated shoulder or torn biceps etc all of that stuff's there if you're if you're actually integrating the whole image into yours so it, i found it very useful to show to even advanced clinicians who don't always get the test but who who find that there's something to be said for enhancing their capacity as observers. We ask almost all of our guests to go back in time and take them back to the, to the time when they were residents or perhaps early attendings. And knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, that's, I thought that was a very interesting way to phrase the question. Uh, whereas normally it would be, what would you give uh, advice to other people about. Um, uh, but what I'm going to say actually is I, th I think what I, I sort of did, but certainly would articulate to residents and medical students who would come by for counseling. It's amazing how many came to ask what should they do? And of course you have no idea what they should do. Um, and, and getting them to crystallize their thoughts about that would be, was quite important. But the, as I thought about that, the question I asked, and I, I don't know, they, I, I still think it would have been useful if someone had asked me, but I, I think I'd already done it, is whose job do you want? Yeah. Folks seem to have difficulty deciding that they want to be a community surgeon, a big city surgeon, a country surgeon, an academic surgeon. I did my own thinking about career structure, but I think that that's a very important question as well. Uh, what kind of a career do you want? Uh, you have to learn to to make decisions that are that are actually not crucial. So what I mean by that is, um, do you want to be in, um, in ortho, I'm going to go into orthopedics. Well, do you want to be a hand surgeon or a shoulder surgeon or ankle, foot, ankle surgeon? Well, actually it doesn't, it doesn't much matter. All you have to do is decide you're going to be one or the other, and then go and be the best you can be. And, uh, I don't think that those kinds of questions are asked often enough. But when I thought about this, uh, I, I, really, I really figuring out what I would ask myself. But the most useful thing I found that I asked other people was whose job do you want? Because if they can do that, and I then translated back, I can now admit it, but anyone had asked me at that time whose job did I want, I, I would have to have said I would like Floyd McLean's job, which I suppose I, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's what happened. 
but uh, they also have to know what how how to structure a career and not everybody does know how to do that and i i did come to medicine with a big advantage that i had a grandfather who was uh, head of medicine at the uh, vic and mcgill for i don't know 25 years and so a lot of the issues associated with academic careers kind of filtered down as i was growing up i have no real recollection of how that happened, but I seem to understand some of the issues, even as I was in medical school, about how to structure where I wanted to go and what I wanted to be. Although there were some right angle turns along the way. Uh, there was one other thing that uh, I mentioned earlier, you just have to decide. And the analogy I would use uh, always is uh, I I farm and we used to prune our apple trees and other plants. And the fact is that when you trim an apple tree and come back a year later, you cannot tell uh, which branches you cut off that have allowed the tree to become straight. In other words, if you come to a fork uh, in a tree and you cut this one off, the tree will simply straighten out. And this is that you've decided to do something and and now you're going to do it. Uh, Yogi Berra had an expression. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Now you can interpret that any number of different ways, but it it it's really... It's, it's really the truth because it, um, it doesn't actually matter which pathway you take as long as you do the best you can do and are the best you can be. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.